Good day. Welcome back to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society, and I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the English language today, having written well over 100 books so far in his career. And today, we are speaking about appeasement, 80 years on. Welcome, Professor Black. Good morning. Professor Black, uh, what do you mean, what does everyone mean, at least historians, by the term appeasement? Well, appeasement refers to both a general circumstance and to the particularities of the 1930s. In the terms of a general circumstance, it refers to the willingness to appropriate, to not oppose the aggressive stance or policies of particular states. In the context of the 1930s, it refers to the response to uh, aggression by um, Japan, Italy, and most famously Germany, and refers in particular to the specific policies followed uh, as Germany um, expanded its strength and ambition under Adolf Hitler in the mid to late 1930s. Uh, forgive the vulgarity of the question, but um, circumstances promised me to ask it. Uh, would you describe yourself as pro or anti-appeasement as the policy was carried out by the British government vis-à-vis um, Germany and, I suppose, uh, one would say Italy as well in 1930s? Um, I wouldn't describe myself as pro or anti. I would describe myself as a historian, as trying to explain why people took decisions. I think, in fact, um, you and I are both um, scholars, and we will know that there are generally reasons for things. And in order to understand something, you have to uh, accept and um, accept and uh, explain those reasons. As a moral agent, one might very well have one's own views, but. Um, that's not always terribly helpful in an ahistorical uh, fashion, because what we know is what was to happen later. What contemporaries did not know was what was to happen later. So if one uses the analogy of the present day, which is an analogy which is not helpful, but which I'm only deploying in answer to your question, um, people might say that, say, over Crimea with Vladimir Putin, over Tibet with China, over Kashmir with India, uh, over the North Korean missiles, there is widespread appeasement today, but at the same time, it's very unclear how best to respond to it and how best to prioritize. Now, I'm not saying that that justifies or doesn't justify particular actions or courses of action in the 1930s, but what I would say and I was reading the New York Times' uh, book review uh, uh, this week, uh, this weekend about a, a book on appeasement. What I would say is that people rush to offer judgment on the past who then are extraordinarily hesitant about urging a course of action today. Would you say that there was an ongoing appeasement policy by the British government uh, going back to the 1920s, which, uh, in retrospect, one might say made some sense insofar as one was appeasing the Germany of Gustav Stresemann, 
but did not make much sense when one was appeasing the Germany of uh, Adolf Hitler? Well, that's a very good question. What I would say is, let's put it in this context, an international uh, peace had been decreed by the Versailles Peace Settlement, or the, the various treaties that composed that settlement negotiated in 1919 and 1920. And from the outset, as with any peace settlement, um, one can think, for example, of that which followed the Second World War, um, there were problems with it. Um, you, you know, you're an American. One of the most obvious problems was that the, the world's most affluent state, and in fact, a state that had played a major role in negotiating the peace settlement, the United States, was unwilling to join the League of Nations and unwilling to play any significant role in maintaining um, the peace. Then secondly, the peace settlement had already been completely torn up in the case of Turkey, which had had a peace imposed on it. It was a defeated power. The peace had been negotiated in 1920. And by 1923, after war and um, successful Turkish, whatever you might want to call it, national regeneration, though of course that language was, alas, used by Hitler as well, uh, the Turks had forced a complete rejigging. And lastly, it's worth bearing in mind that a coalition of 14 states uh, had intervened in the Russian Civil War in order to try and prevent what they called Bolshevism, we would now call it communism, from not only taking over Russia, but from also expanding its power. And on the whole, that had been unsuccessful. It was true that the coalition had prevented, and the efforts of the people involved, had prevented uh, the communists conquering Poland in 1920 and taking over the Baltic republics and conquering Finland, but otherwise it had been totally unsuccessful. So given that that 14-state coalition had been so unsuccessful at uh, dealing with Russia and that therefore perforce there had been the necessity for a policy of containing Russia, one I think needs to look at the 1930s against the context of the 1920s experience of the problems of interventionist warfare. What do you make of the Paul Kennedy argument in his essay, The Tradition of Appeasement in British Foreign Policy, 1865 to 1939, uh, where he argues that beginning with Palmerston's death, 1865, um, until 1939, there was a bias in British foreign policy to deal with the aggressors or people who give the, gave the appearance of being aggressors by a policy of compromise and modus vivendi rather than the employing uh, unilaterally force. Well, I think, I mean, that's an interesting view, but I think you can find, if you want to use the term, the term has been used by historians, appeasement throughout history. I mean, if you're, you're specifically asking me about the change with Palmerston, um, as you are well aware, there have been arguments that British um, policy, including under Palmerston, appeased the United States as it spread its power within North America and into Central America in the mid-19th century, that Britain was appeasing uh, the United States during the Mexican Civil War, that Britain was appeasing America over the Oregon question, that it was appeasing the, the Union during the Civil War. I'm not sure I find that term terribly helpful, and I think Paul Kennedy uh, was, as it were, writing for effect rather than accuracy, which all too many historians, alas, do. Um, what I would say is, for any power, there are the need to prioritize among commitments, there is the balance between external 
and internal pressures. There is the difficulty of assessing how best to deal with states. And there is also the desire to try and have other states that have been your enemies or maybe your opponents brought into your views by compromise and negotiation. So if you think about it, um, the British, as well as others, were occupying states in France after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, and it was very important, to try, as they saw it, to try and bring France back into the community of nations, and you could argue, if you wish to take that argue, argument, that as a result they appeased uh, Napoleon III or they appeased um, the July monarchy. I don't think that's terribly helpful. Uh, what I would say is they sought to adapt to the post-war situation. And I, I think the same point um, can be made later in the 19th century and into the 20th century. After all, the British had points of dispute with, say, France or Russia. They negotiated an entente with France in 1904 and with Russia in 1907. Now, I so happen to think those were successful negotiations. Uh, like all negotiations, they involved compromise, and compromise is very difficult. And you know we're uh, specifically talking about uh, the response to the um, aggressive powers of the 30s. You know that in order to respond to that, the British and the Americans had to negotiate with the Soviet Union and perforce the Soviet Union was appeased. I mean, for example, you know, people tend to think about Eastern Europe here and Eastern Europe is the prime, sorry, Eastern Europe is the prime example. But the British were not delighted um, with the fact that the joint occupation of uh, Persia, Iran in 1941, brought Soviet troops into Tehran, for example. Um, so I think what one has to say is that much of the criticism is often ahistorical unless it focuses on the specific problems which allowed people to do to take the steps they did and the difficulty is that a moral weight is placed on the choices made now we all know that the third reich was to be a vicious and genocidal regime uh, and that its destruction was well uh, was both necessary and well-merited. We all know that. That was not something so obvious to all contemporaries. And indeed, if you want to take a hard look at it, let us say you're looking as late as 1939, probably as late as 1940, more people had been butchered by Stalin in the Soviet Union than had been butchered by Hitler. Um, Yes, you have concentration camps like Dachau. Um, the concentration camps see people being murdered, and that's disgraceful. But as yet, you don't have extermination camps like Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, uh, or Treblinka, whereas, as we know, um, the, uh, the Soviet Union and its gulags was already murdering very large numbers of people. And the difficulty is that at the present moment, people who criticize appeasement, maybe deservedly so, whatever you mean by deservedly, or whatever I mean by deservedly, seem to have a moral blankness when they're looking at the Soviet Union. And all I'm trying to say is we need, if we wish to use moral terms, a degree more complexity, and that, alas, is not what is suited to the modern age with its glib use of labels, and appeasement is one of the most famous labels. It's glib use of, a plea of labels in order to make judgments and then in order to decry others. Uh, without a doubt, just getting back to a point you made just now, 
uh, Stalin had the league championship in terms of uh, murders up to the mid-summer of 1941. Uh, that is, without a doubt, historically accurate. Um, but getting back to uh, appeasement uh, in the 1930s, what do you make of the so-called revisionist argument of the 1970s, 1980s, I suppose, up to early 1990s, of people like Simon Newman, John Charmley, P.D. P.G. Pendon, etc., that there were structural aspects of the appeasement policy which, over and above the moral view of the uh, orthodox school, um, which made sense uh, for the appeasement policy of uh, Halifax, Chamberlain, etc., to um, be promulgated and followed. Well, I think they, those views deserve consideration just as their critics deserve consideration. If I might just um, explain some of the situations, as you know, I've written a military history of the interwar years and a history of, of the British Empire. Um, what I would point out is that the British uh, saw a variety of security challenges in the 30s, the most significant of them being Germany, Japan, Italy, and the Soviet Union. Those were the ones that they were most concerned about. There were others, but those were the ones they were most concerned about. <laughs> what they did not wish to do was obviously fight all these powers simultaneously. They, therefore, there was a debate about prioritization. Is, for example, Italian expansionism in the Mediterranean, um, the develop, the, you know, where you see the invasion of Abyssinia, what we would call Ethiopia, where you see Mussolini stirring up Arab nationalism against the British and French empires, Mussolini building a large fleet. Um, is that more or less serious than another threat? Is Japan, which invaded Manchuria in 1931 and uh, which was following an aggressively militaristic policy, which had built up an enormous navy, the third largest navy in the world after the British and the American, uh, which was then after it took over Manchuria, pressing on with further expansionism into China? Is that more or less a threat and how best to oppose it? Now, linked to that, there were debates within the military and within the empire. As you could appreciate, Australia and New Zealand and those concerned with India were more affected and more worried by Japan. Those affected by India were incidentally still worried about the Soviet Union pressing south in a future great game episode through Afghanistan and Iran. But they were much more concerned about that than they were concerned about Europe. Um, the Navy tended to be much more um, uh, concerned about Japan and Italy than it was concerned about Germany. Um, the Army tended to put an emphasis, depending upon which branch of the Army you were looking at, and there are variations here, but a lot of the army was primarily focused on trying to suppress anti-imperial risings. And it's worth bearing in mind that the British had a formidable military commitment in the late 30s, both against the Fakir of Ippi, who was an Islamic fundamentalist on the northwest frontier of India, what we would call uh, Pakistan now, and also against the Arab rising in Palestine, um, uh, what, what we would now call Israel, both of which... Um, 
were large scale. Incidentally, the Arab rising was very much against Jewish immigration as well as against the British mandate. Um, and, you know, if you were sitting there as a, um, uh, as a, let us say, a Zionist commentator in 1938, you might have found it hard pressed to decide whether the more urgent problem were Jews being murdered by Arabs in Palestine or Jews being murdered by Germans in Germany. You know, it's not simply that one factor is obviously so much more clearly significant than the other. So those, there are those issues. <clears throat> then separate to that issue is the question, um, if you go for large-scale rearmament, whatever that means, what are you going to prioritize? Is it more important to build aircraft carriers than it is to build fighter aircraft? Is it more important to build bombers as a deterrent than fighters? If you're going to invest in tanks, is it the danger that you're going to invest in a weapon system that actually might be of singularly little flexibility unless you are going to be fighting in certain military environments. So there are those practical issues. And then on top of that, there's the issue of, if you like, if the nature of the British system is that of a essentially um, not a fully militarized state, the British, like the Americans, did not have conscription. The British, like the Americans, had a view of the state in which at that stage uh, there was a... Um, a desire not to have the state running society, mobilizing all the resources of society to a particular goal, whether it was left-wing like the Soviet Union or right-wing socialist like, uh, like um, Hitler. Um, if that's your view of the state, is it worth or is it possible even in a parliamentary democracy to jeopardize that rule of the state? And I think those points are necessary because it's worth bearing in mind that uh, you know, a significant portion of domestic public opinion and not just in Britain, was wary about getting involved in another war like World War I, um, unless, as it were, there was clearly an existential threat to national survival. Uh, would it be true, uh, you believe, that everyone who was in office in the national government in the UK, the government which came into office in August uh, 1931, Eden, Baldwin, MacDonald, Halifax, Simon, Hoare, Chamberlain, etc. could in retrospect be called appeasers? I'm just not sure that I find appeasement a terribly helpful term in this context. I think that they were taking part in what they saw as a prudential consideration of national interest in a complex and difficult environment. And I'm not sure I find the connotations of the term appeasement terribly helpful there. Um, uh, they were democratic politicians uh, operating in a democracy in terms in which it was far from clear what the principal threat to that democracy was. And I think you can make the point that that was more generally true of similar democratic politicians elsewhere. Um, it tends to be forgotten that both in the Chanak crisis vis-a-vis -vis Turkey when it was breaking the peace treaty in 1922 and in the Munich crisis in 1938, which I suppose is a close analogy to Chanak. Um, in neither case did the British find that all of the democracies in the empire were behind them. Um, in the case of 1938, for example, the Canadian government under Mackenzie King was very wary about getting drawn into another uh, imperial, as they saw it, in, in other words, part of the British empire war 
And of course, uh, you're an American, you will know that the most significant of the appeasing powers was the United States. It was financially the strongest power. Um, it obviously had the resources to be a, a major uh, land power. It already had a major air force and it had the second largest navy in the world. And yet the United States consistently appeased um, Japan in the 30s and consistently when neutral powers were attacked by Hitler um, right through into 1941, the Americans sat on their hands and did nothing. So I, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of this criticism, if you wish to use terms like appeasers, one should be thinking as much as, you know, um, Roosevelt or for that matter, Wilkie, both of them fighting the presidential election in 1940. Um, were very keen to tell the electors American boys would not be so serving overseas. And, you know, that reflected a widespread feeling in the United States. So, as I've said, if you wish to use the term appeasement, one has to um, uh, argue it much more widely than to think of it as something that's used uniquely British or distinctively British and French. Would you agree with Robert Self um, that with the Chamberlain's assumption of the premiership in the spring of 1937, that an active rather than passive appeasement policy vis-a-vis -vis Germany um, and to a lesser extent Italy came into being? Uh, what I would say about Chamberlain is that Chamberlain very what much what wished to negotiate a settlement of an increasing European crisis. Uh, the, I suppose the modern term for it is engagement. So if you think of the term engagement rather than appeasement, you might be getting closer to it. And of course, we could be thinking of some modern politicians. Remember, Chamberlain was not the only person that tried to talk to uh, Hitler. Um, Lloyd George, for example, went to see Hitler twice in Birch's Garden in 1937. There was a wish uh, to try and... Um, and negotiate uh, a settlement to try and reach uh, a modus vivendi. Of course, Chamberlain wasn't the person that invented that. The Anglo-German naval agreement had been signed in 1935. So I think one has to be careful of saying that Chamberlain, in some respects, uh, was a uniquely bad man. And in the ultimate, I mean, after all, it's worth bearing in mind that Chamberlain did reach what he thought was a settlement with Hitler, at Munich. The settlement was uh, breached by Hitler, as you know, for the following spring with the occupation of Bohemia and Moravia. And in response to that, you're not seeing the British government responding as, say, the American government did by doing nothing, nor do you see the British government responding as the Soviet government does by negotiating a deal with Hitler and, you know, advancing its own interests, instead of which the British government extends guarantees to Poland and Romania, and then subsequently declares war on Germany. Now, you might argue, some people have argued, that they fought the wrong war, that they would have been better off fighting over Czechoslovakia uh, rather than Poland. And we could discuss that. Um, but that's a different issue from suggesting that Chamberlain was in some way a craven and foolish man. He tried to negotiate a settlement. It didn't work out. Um, and he then uh, responded to the next, next aggression by going to war. 
Would you agree with those, I suppose you can characterize as a post-revisionist uh, argument, uh, like uh, your friend Robert Crowcroft, uh, who assert that Chamberlain's real um, error was not that he was an appeaser per se, but that he unnecessarily involved the UK in the affairs of Central and Eastern Europe, when it would have made much more sense for the UK to have uh, not taken any position vis-a-vis uh, -vis those areas, and in effect allowed Germany and Stalin's Russia to fight it out in some great war, which the UK as a neutral could have taken advantage of um, at an appropriate juncture. Well, um, that argument, of course, is one that you've seen not just for World War Two, but for World War One, uh, with uh, Niall Ferguson's "The Pity of War." Um, I, I think that the, although the, um, although that you could look at scenarios in which Britain had not did not get involved, the reality was that the occupation of Bohemia and Moravia and then the declaration of war and invasion of Poland very clearly showed that there was no possibility of trust with Hitler. Now, at that point, it then becomes very unclear what was, if you like, the best scenario. So let's play it forward. As we know, the, de the declaration of war is by the following June to look a disastrous decision. Uh, British forces have been bundled out of the continent. Uh, Britain's ally France and has been defeated. Uh, a number of neutral powers, Holland, Belgium, Netherlands, sorry, Holland, Belgium, Norway, and Denmark have been conquered. America is still doing bugger all. Um, the situation is a really challenging and threatening one. And at that point, it looks unclear whether the sensible decision was made the previous year on, shall we say, strategic grounds. On political grounds, I think the, um, uh, the Hitlerian aggression of uh, 1939 would have been very difficult for Britain to have treated like the Americans treated, uh, treated it. I think it would have been very difficult to do nothing and expect um, uh, political calm in Britain over that. I mean, what was very interesting is that there was a lot of you know, genuine enthusiasm for the Prime Minister when he came back from Munich, the idea of peace in our time, that was regarded as a genuinely uh, great success. And what's interesting is there was a shift in the mood by the following summer and a view that uh, Hitler had clearly shown that he could not be trusted. And if you like to use an older um, religious sense, the notion of a just war was one now that appeared much more uh, acceptable. So it's rather interesting that, you know, Britain is a democracy. And if you think about it, in the late autumn of 1939, there were people who were opposed to fighting Germany. Uh, the left, for example, a lot on the far left, who, because Stalin was allied to um, 
to Germany, uh, thought that the British should not be fighting Germany. I think Mr. Corbyn's father was one of those people in that category. So there's that group. There was the far-right fascists under Oswald Mosley. There were the Irish nationalists, the IRA. But with the exception of those groups, and I think it has to be said that none of those groups reflect uh, credit on themselves or indeed were anything other than maverick groups within the country as a whole, with the exception of those groups, the vast majority of the public, including the opposition, uh, went along with the government's policy. Conscription was introduced uh, with very few difficulties, whereas conscription had been a really vexatious issue in 1916. So I think um, that in part, I'm not sure I would agree with uh, Robert. I think, you know, Robert's a good historian and I think his book should be read. I think it would have been harder to hold together the coalition of interest that was necessary to wage a major war if nothing had been done about Hitler in the late uh, 30s. Now, the question then arises, I mean, what you're suggesting and what Robert is suggesting is that um, the Third Reich um, might well have gone on to attack the Soviet Union uh, rather than um, uh, turned in 1940 rather than turned west and devastated Britain and France. And you know, that is possible. I mean, as you will well know, if you're looking at Hitler's comments, uh, he makes, he was, shall we say, an eclectic thinker, not a systematic, uh, uh, not a systematic or organized thinker. So he made comments all over the place as to what he hated the most, whether it was Bolshevism or, um, you know, capitalism, whether he was most worried about uh, the Soviet Union or the United States or Britain. Um, I think he was not somebody you could have bet the bank on having a consistent deal with, leaving aside the question of whether you would have wanted to do so. Now, it's true, floating back to what we were originally talking about, uh, if um, opposition to Hitler meant, as it did from 1941, alliance with Stalin, then you could fairly say that that was not a morally good deal. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a, militarily, it was helpful, though there was a high cost in providing uh, material support to the Soviet Union, but uh, which the Soviets and their apologists tend to ignore. Um, but the, um, I think one's got to be very careful of assuming that on the basis of the fact that we ended up uh, being allied to a truly disgusting individual, that we therefore should not have fought another truly disgusting individual. I think that's a, those are very difficult uh, issues. But as I've said, I'm not sure how best we would want to approach them. Going back to something you said earlier, isn't an issue or a problem with the historical literature is that it tends very much to be a purely British or Anglo-American or Anglosphere discussion that uh, the historians who are writing on this subject, at least the British or American historians for that matter, really discuss uh, much Charles, more. I can't really hear you. Can you come closer to the microphone? Sorry. Oh, I, I thought I was very close. Um, let me rephrase that then. Um, is there not a problem with the literature which you um, uh, raised before, which is that it tends very much to be a uh, British or Anglo-American or Anglosphere 
discussion that it really concentrates on or discusses or much less does research in uh, other countries. I'm particularly I'm thinking particularly of France that in much of literature there's this very lazy assumption that the French are browbeaten by the British into following appeasement policy uh, from 1936 onwards, when in point of fact, if you read books like uh, Jean-Baptiste Duracell's La Décadence, uh, it's very much the case that the, for many different reasons, the French themselves were uh, adherents of uh, their own appeasement policy and were extremely um, disinclined to uh, engage militarily with uh, Hitler's Germany starting in 1936. Yes, I think that's very fair. I mean, you see French appeasement taking the leading role in the Spanish Civil War. You see, uh, for French strategists, of course, it was very unclear whether Italy was not the major threat rather than France. If you're looking at France from the point of view of its imperial links with North Africa, if you're looking at France as a Mediterranean naval power, then Italy is a much stronger threat. And of course, the French devote a lot of energy in the late 30s to building ships like the Richelieu and the Strasbourg and the Dunkirk, most of which are designed to fight the, the, um, the, uh, the Italian Navy. And of course, France is less populous than Germany. Its essential military doctrine is, tr- uh, is configured on a defensive one, um, most famously uh, with the Maginot Line. Uh, so I think I'd agree with you entirely, but I think we can take that further. There is this notion of Eastern Europe as sort of abandoned by these, you know, these callous British and French. Well, I mean, let's be clear about this. Poland is a military state which is quite happy to bully its neighbours in its own way, you know, as it does in Lithuania. It takes a little slice of Czechoslovakia as part of the partition. Um, uh, Hungary and Romania are not exactly um, sort of sitting around waiting to be uh, torn up by their neighbours. They have their own ambitions and uh, and uh, sort of territorial uh, pursuits. So, yes, I think you have to be very, very, very careful of dumping the blame. And what you've got in part... I mean, I, you know, I think one's got to be careful here, but, you know, let's be, I think there is a reasonable, you know, this kind of left-wing notion in Britain of self-hatred of the country, which you see with the way in which the empire is discussed, I think you can take it right back to appeasement. You can take it right back to, say, Michael Foote's 12 Guilty Men. You know, the attack, the argument... Um, that appeasement was a, a matter of a sort of a group of sort of corrupt and out of touch uh, British politicians. You saw that in the recent film Churchill. No attempt to explain what they were trying to do and no attempt to look at the extent to which uh, left-wing um, figures who were appropriating the Soviet Union were part of the main problem. After all, two, P- two states attacked Poland in September 1939. One was Germany, the other was the Soviet Union. And yet, um, for right through the Cold War, uh, it was the case that left-wing apologists, and as we know, a lot of academics are left-wing, founded all sorts of reasons to extenuate Stalin, um, you know, rather than to, uh, and to criticize Britain, rather than to actually note that Stalin loathed the Poles, had himself been butchering Poles within the Soviet Union right through from the early 30s, um, 
had his own expansionist policies when the Soviet Union took over Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. They murdered a lot of people. They took a large number of people uh, to the gulags. These were, this was a vicious regime. And for some reason, people seem happier to attack Chamberlain um, rather than to comment on what was really going on. Uh, and, and as I've said, I, I do think uh, we're moving here beyond the bounds of academic uh, discussion and particularly discussion which is aware of strategic and political issues and the difficulty of prioritization in a complex strategic environment and we're moving instead to a, just a willingness on the left to trash the nation's history and I think that's a really sad aspect of, of where we are and it's a sad aspect of an inherent bias in much of the academic community. Going back to uh, this, well, our uh, discussion in terms of, of uh, the Munich Agreement, uh, do you agree or find favor or plausibility with the Chamberlainite or I suppose really Sir Keith feeling argument that uh, the Munich Agreement gave the UK a needed one year uh, to rearm and that is the was the um, benefit for the UK and I suppose to Smaller degree, France, of agreeing to Hitler's terms in uh, September 1938? Well, again, that's a very good question. I mean, what I would say is. Uh, that's an ex post facto justification of it. I mean, Chamberlain thought he was negotiating a peace, um, so he didn't think he was primarily sitting there, as it were, uh, engaged in some Machiavellian sell the checks out so that we're better able to fight. Um, I, what I would say is rearmament was already going on. Uh, the Navy and the Air Force were already being built up quite uh, rapidly. Um, I think certainly the, um, the effect of war coming a year later uh, after more aggression from Germany was that it was easier to create uh, domestic and international support within the empire uh, for the war, and I think that's important. On the other hand, it was, you know, obviously pretty appalling for the Czechs. I mean, I was in the Sudetenland in September, and it's very obvious if you're, you know, if you're standing in the passes, and then if you go and you're looking down towards Prague or north uh, from the other side of the Sudetenland uh, up towards Dresden, it's very obvious that it provides a military obstacle that didn't exist um, once that had been lost um, and clearly there were many disadvantages um, of the Czech, of Czechoslovakia sort of falling to Germany not least the important arms manufacturing that it was able to uh, to seize um, so that was and of course the Czech army which I think would have fought well and would have fought uh, bravely on the other hand, I mean, the military advice to the British government from the chiefs of staff was that there was only a limited amount that they could do. Um, and indeed, there was only relatively little that they could do, as it turned out, and as we know, uh, to help to help uh, Poland. I mean, the British war plans essentially was a matter of the long war idea that um, Germany could be held in the West by France's defences with the British Expeditionary Force playing a role there and that the Navy would blockade Germany and that hopefully that would cause 
either Hitler to be reasonable or lead to the overthrow, uh, his overthrow from within Germany. Of course, that strategy was completely destroyed by the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union meant that the blockade was worthless. The Soviet Union provided oil and coal and grain in vast quantities. Um, but the uh, whether that strategy would have worked in 1938, I simply do not know. Um, but for Chamberlain, it, you know, there was an opportunity to try and negotiate a peace. And it has to be said that, of course, on the principle of national self-determination, um, much of the Sudetenland was not all of it was occupied by a significant number of Germans, uh, some of whom wished to be reunited uh, as they saw it with a German ruling country. It had previously been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, of course. Um, so again, you have this problem, and it's a problem that goes right back uh, to the idea of national self-determination or nationalism, if you wish to use the term, that where that uh, happens uh, and we like it, we give it a tick mark. And where it happens and we don't like it, we give it a cross and then we sit around and try and make moral statements on the basis of it. Um, you can understand that people in the past might have had a different view of which national self-determination is appropriate and not. I, you know, I'm just simply making that point. Um, I, I personally would have loved to have seen uh, the German army, you know, overthrow Hitler in 1938 during the uh, Munich crisis, which was a possibility in the case of some of the German military, not all of it by any means. Um, but, you know, in, in the scenarios of what happened, um, I think Chamberlain was making a effort to try and negotiate a peace. What he wasn't doing was what the Americans did, which is just sitting on their hands and doing nothing. Uh, do you agree with those, I'm thinking in particular of Tim Bovary in his new book, uh, titled appropriately enough, Appeasement, who argue that uh, this was a policy favored by a portion of the British aristocracy lived in, etc., or would you, the other extreme, uh, would you agree with the Lewis Nemeri, Alan Taylor argument that appeasement was a policy favored not by conservatives, much less by the British aristocracy, but by the liberal, nonconformist, provincial, middle class, as that term was um, defined then, uh, meaning people, of course, like Simon, Runciman, Chamberlain, or Inskip, Baldwin, etc.? Well, I certainly, I mean, I, I know Tim Bovary, and in fact, I read his book for him, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a book worth reading. Um, I'm afraid to say that I think Namier and Taylor, there's a lot of force there. I think what, what I would say is that what we um, reify, turn into a thing of appeasement, meant different things, different episodes, different, as it were, drives in different episodes. So... And I would link that to different elements also, not just in the political uh, um, elite uh, and world and culture, as, as you've suggested, but also within the military, as I was suggesting earlier. So 
What I would say is the, um, as you put it, middle class nonconformists uh, were very keen on not having another war. And it's against that context that you get Lloyd George going to Birchard's Garden. And of course, Lloyd George believing in 1940 that he, not Churchill, should be the man that is called upon uh, with the fall of Chamberlain and that he will negotiate a peace with Hitler. That's Lloyd George's view. And nobody is going to suggest that Lloyd George was a member of the aristocracy of the traditional landed aristocracy. So uh, so I think there's that viewpoint that you can uh, look at. Um, there is the separate strand of left-wing pacifism, which is in part related to nonconformity, but not just nonconformity. And that reflects in part the response to World War I. And I think that is important. Now, as far as the aristocracy is concerned, there are obviously uh, crypto-fascists. There's no doubt about that. I think the Duke of Westminster, for example, is a prominent instance of that at the height of society. But there are other aristocrats who, of course, loathe Hitler. So I think I, think, um, I would be wary of of turning it into a social category that pushes in a particular direction. Um, and again, the response to Hitler means different things in, shall we say, 1936, uh, the summer of 1938, the spring of 1939, and the summer of 1939. And I think that that is a point that is worth drawing out. It takes quite a lot of people quite a time to realize how dangerous he is. I think that's true. Um, it takes other people who have realized that he is dangerous and a threat um, a, you know, a period of time to work out what to do about him. And that, in a sense, is also a significant uh, uh, viewpoint. How do you deal with a, uh, a leader who has widespread support within his country, and his country is a sovereign state. Um, and as we know, uh, interventionism in the internal affairs of other governments um, and states is a very complex matter. Now, Hitler, of course, pushes the boundary out by attacking his neighbors, which provides a series of occasions in which other powers can decide what to do and how to cope with the response. But as I've indicated, that's within a context in which um, Germany is not alone in being aggressive or revisionist in this fashion. And you've got to be, you know, you've got to work out which you see as the as the leading um, as the leading challenge. And if you want, again, I mean, one has to here be cautious, but, you know, to just try and help American listeners think about this, think about the dilemmas affecting American policy in 1956, when you have both the Suez crisis, um, and the Hungarian crisis and, you know, American policy, you know, in hindsight, we might say, oh, the Americans should have done A, uh, whatever A is, um, and you could have listeners will have different viewpoints. But the, the, the point is that at the time, it was very unclear uh, what was the best way forward for the United States and how acting in one, uh, one uh, issue would affect the broader strategic pattern. To conclude, why do you think uh, that the appeasement of Germany as such, or for that matter Italy in the 1930s, has still such a bad odor 
I'm thinking um, in particular of uh, Timothy Browning's review of the Bouverie book in the New York Review of Books, where he takes it as self-evident that uh, uh, all of the um, stereotypes of, of, uh, of the foot guilty men's school, or at least the book that came out in 1940, are, were accurate. Uh, when, when, and as opposed to, say, the appeasement of Stalin during and after World War II does not nearly have the same foul odor. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, well, first of all, Hitler was a vicious uh, regime, and we know that in posterity. Um, we don't have vivid uh, photographs showing what Stalin did. I think that's very important in a visual age. Um, but I think more seriously, going back to the uh, point I was making earlier, there does seem to be among left liberal commentariat a hatred of Britain, a hatred of its empire, um, although it's the empire, of course, ironically, that plays the you know the great role in uh, in stopping Ger Germany uh, alongside the Soviets and alongside the Americans. Um, but it's this hatred of, of of Britain and this hatred of the sort of old British sort of continuity. Um, and I find that yes, I think it's troubling. These people are really writing. I, I didn't read that specific book review, so I can't comment on the review. But these people are are really taking part in the culture wars of the present day. And appeasement provides them with a, a convenient label. They need to think much more about Stalin toasting Hitler as that great man. They need to think much more about the way that the left repeatedly accepted the Soviet control of areas. And remember, in the late 40s, early 50s, in countries like Latvia and Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Soviet control was a matter of murdering lots of people, sending them uh, to camps in which they were kept till they died or brutalized. Um, people need to accept that. They need to look at the present day and think, why is it that they are so much more ready to criticize um, pro-Western states or Western states than they are to look at the brutality uh, and viciousness of governments such as those of Iran or Turkey, um, um, you know, or uh, you know, Russia uh, or China, North Korea. I mean, I find the same thing in the debate about slavery. People are so much happier to bang on about how awful Britain was two and a half hundred years, sorry, 250 years ago, and not address the fact that slavery is the condition of the entire population of North Korea today. So I think in, in part. Partly it's a matter of laziness, intellectual laziness. Partly it's a matter of stupidity. Partly, I'm afraid, it is more sinister and it is part of the way in which the left has been so successful in the long march through the institutions and in capturing opinion. And I'm afraid to say that the treatment of history and the nature of higher education repeatedly de demonstrates that. Well, with that uh, conclusion, which I entirely agree with, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak to us today. This is Charles Petillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you, Charles.